Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, going to be having a chat about Juan Pujol Garcia, uh, this bloke was a double agent and a spy against Nazi Germany during the uh, during the Second World War, and his story is absolutely amazing. So listen to this: all by himself, without the support of another nation, right? He fed the Nazis false and misleading information and invented a completely made-up spy network that the Nazis then helped to fund. Check that out. Initially, as I said, did this all by himself. He set this up by himself. This this completely fictitious, this completely made-up ring of spies, right, all all by himself. He was turned down by the UK initially when he came and offered to, you know, act as a spy on behalf of them. So he just did it by himself, you know, despite how effective his work was, other, the other nations didn't want to work with him until eventually, eventually, the British wisened up, realised how good he was, was at his job and, uh, and brought him on board as well. Now, his work was instrumental in the success of the D-Day landings in 1944. You've definitely heard of them. Um, and quite aside from that, he he tied up all sorts of uh, you know Nazi resources, as well time, effort, and money, etc. That sort of stuff. Um, tied them up in in wild goose chases all over the place, all over the place. This bloke was absolutely incredible, and he did all of this, all the stuff that he did. He did well in his own words. He did it for the good of humanity. Not bad for a fella who started out in life as a chicken farmer. So I'm pretty sure. Before we start, I'm pretty sure that this topic was sent in. By uh, a listener, but I can't. I can't find the email. I'm very, very sorry to the, you know whichever alert listener sent it in. Um, I can't find the email. If if it was you, let me know, and I'll I'll do whatever I can to properly credit you for for putting me on uh, onto onto this bloke. Because, uh, geez, what a story it is. And, and anyway, anyway, let's get to it. Let's have a chat about this bloke, Juan Pujol Garcia. I'm very sorry to all my Spanish listeners about how I'm pronouncing the name. Doing my best. Um, in any case, yes, terrific story, utterly, utterly ridiculous moment. So here we go. Let's get to it. We're going all the way back to 1912 here. On the 14th of February, young Juan is born in Motril, which is uh, just south of Granada in Spain. Now, he's one of uh, four kids. He's the third of four kids uh, to reasonably well-off parents. Uh, his, his dad owned a, a factory or something like that. He was a reasonably, reasonably wealthy bloke. Um, but his parents, they sent him off to boarding school near Barcelona at the age of seven. And he then moved to another school uh, in Barcelona itself when he was about 13. But uh, look, to be honest, he wasn't super into school. After a couple of years there, he gave it the arse and, and got a job at a hardware store at the age of 16. And from then, he went from job to job, uh, never really sticking at anything. He worked here and there. He was working as a manager of a, a cinema at one point, and he actually ended up going back to school uh, to well uh, to a, a university at law. I don't know. I don't know if it was a university or what it was. It, it was. I mean, I just tell you what's name. It was the Royal Poultry School. Um, which is a, a pretty interesting thing to have a, a royal prefix. I mean, you understand when it's a you know a state, the royal stables or the royal armory, but the royal chook college is is a little odd. Anyway, he did he did um, animal husbandry there, so he, he's you know he's getting involved in, uh, in in chooks and learning about you know how how chickens work, which end to put the you know the feed in and which end the eggs come out of that sort of stuff. So he's he's learning all all that very technical stuff, very complicated stuff there, and. Um, on top of that, again, doing a bit of this, bit of that, none, none of it's hugely important until 1931, 
when he's called up for compulsory uh, military service, compulsory national service was a, was a thing back then uh, in Spain, and uh, he's uh, he's called up to uh, to join the military uh, in, in in 31, as I say. Now, you know how when your mum used to ask you to uh, you know to do something, I don't know, like wash the dishes or vacuum the house or do, do whatever you do, and you do a bad job deliberately, so she wouldn't ask again. That seems to have been the case here with old mate Pujol here because he didn't seemed to have a very great time. He didn't didn't really enjoy the you know the soldiering life, his time in the military there, and 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 as a result he. He seemed to wanted to get out of it as soon as possible, and so he did as bad a job as he could. The soldiering life was not for him, um, which is unfortunate, actually, because after he's finished with his national service, uh, he's actually not finished with the military and with uh, with soldiering uh, quite quite yet. But after he's done with his national service, after he gets this taste of, of, of what it's like to be in the military and, and realise he doesn't like it, he, he does manage to go back to his chook farming, back to his beloved chooks, which he does until 1936. Now, as you'll probably, as you might be aware, in 1936, the Spanish Civil War broke out. Now, he's conscripted for service once again, this time by the Republican forces there. Now, Paul isn't a fan of the Republican side because uh, they had arrested and imprisoned his mum and his sister. And apparently, you know, they'd been mistreated. They managed to escape later on, but apparently the Republicans hadn't been very, uh, hadn't been treating very well. So he doesn't want to fight for them, as you might expect. And uh, rather than uh, get drafted, he tries to, uh, he tries to dodge the draft and uh, goes into hiding at his girlfriend's house to avoid being caught up there. But doesn't work. The police, so they raid her house and they find him, and he ends up imprisoned as well by the Republicans there, uh, but uh, not for long. Some resistance fighters, they bust him out. They make him some uh, fake identity papers that uh, put his birth date at a point where he'd be too old to be conscripted. So that's got, you know, sort of a little uh, a free pass, get out of jail free pass. Well, it was not only a get out of jail free card that they because they got him out of jail, also get out of conscription free card, which, you know, is, is in the advanced version of Monopoly. We don't often see that one. Anyway, he manages to go back to his original passion once again. Chook farming. He's pulling the pulling you know, those bum nuts right out of the chooks, having a great time doing all that sort of stuff. But again, wasn't a fan of the Republicans and uh, their communist influence politics. He's working at a, uh, at a at a poultry farm that had been uh, more or less seized by the Republican faction there, uh, and it wasn't particularly well run. It wasn't particularly economically viable because of the you know again this the, you know the communism and or the communist communist influence uh, politics of the Republicans there, and so. Uh, you know, generally not being a fan of the Republicans in a general sense, uh, he made a plan to escape uh, their influence, their sphere of influ- influence there and defect to the other side by doing in what has to be a 400 IQ move. He joined back up with the Republican army. Now, that on the face of it might seem like a very bad, oh, I need to escape the clutches of this government. I know, I'll join their military. That's how I'll, that's how I'll solve this problem. But it actually was a, a, a rock-solid plan because what he did after joining the army, he volunteered to get put on the front lines, right? He volunteered to be put out right on the front where they were fighting the nationalists there. And he's he, and it worked like a charm. He's out there on the front lines. He was working on um, telegraph cables or something like that out there right on the front lines. Um and then he defected. He deserted as soon as he could. As soon as there was he, the first chance he got, he was running away over on the other side to join the Nationalists. This happened in uh, in 1938 during the Battle of the Ebro. Right now, you'd think fantastic. He's got what he wanted. He's over on the other side with the Nationalists. But nope, it uh, was not. Uh, well, things didn't go too well for him there either. Uh, he actually ended up being mistreated, and in what seems to be a recurring sort of theme in this bloke's life so far, being imprisoned. Uh, after disagreements with senior officers and uh, and other, a bunch of other stuff that happened to him that wasn't particularly pleasant, he ended up being locked up for a while and then, of course, forced to you know continue to serve in the military for the for the nationalists here. Now, you know, it's 
It's not particularly surprising he had a bad time. I mean, a lot of people had a bad time with the Nationalists. The, the Nationalists were actual, factual, real-life, literal fascists. So, you know, probably isn't going to be much of a surprise that there are a bunch of nasty pasties there. But it, it leaves a very strong impression on young Juan here because at the end of the day, once the Spanish Civil War has ended and, and, and uh, he's discharged and he's about, you know, can go back to civilian life, he's had a bloody gutful of both. He's had a terrible time with both the communists and the fascists, and he bloody hates both of them. He hates totalitarianism in all its forms, and sort of by extension, you know, as, as well as the, the, the communists and the fascists that he's met so far, he also has a, a deep and abiding hatred for both the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany, who resp- who, who supported the respective sides during the uh, the Spanish Civil War. He is quite proud, however, of, of one little fact that, it, that sort of came out of this whole thing with uh, while he, you know, he's involved fighting for both sides. He's quite proud that despite having served for both the uh, the Republicans and the Nationalists, he didn't fire a single shot. He didn't he didn't shoot a single bullet throughout his time as a soldier, not even once for either side. So nice one there, uh, old mate Juan. Uh, you, you, yeah, done a, done a pretty good job sticking to your uh, sticking to your gun. Well, not sticking to your guns actually. Yeah, you 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 stuck a very far a long way away from your guns as it was. Anyway. Pujol's experience as a soldier, it left him feeling the need to do something. He, again, in his words, he wanted to do something for the good of humanity. And so he decides, as you do, to start working as a spy. I mean, not, you know, not necessarily the career path that we all take, but in, the, in this case, in this bloke's case, it, it definitely worked out pretty well from us, as, as, you'll, uh, as you'll discover. Because by this stage, it's 1939. The Second World War is underway, and Pujol is he's determined to do something to oppose the Nazis and, by extension, uh, the, the the Franco government that the Nazis supported. So, you know, he's looking to uh, he's looking to sort of offer a little bit of resistance to to the fascists that are both at home in Spain and abroad over, you know, in uh, in Germany, or whatever else. Paul, he approaches the British. He, uh, these are the, obviously the principal adversaries of the Nazis. Things aren't going too well on the continent. So, you know, the United Kingdom is, is more or less uh, sort of, you know, leading the charge against, against the Nazis at this stage. Um, and he goes to them no fewer than three times offering to be a spy for them. But each time he was turned away. Now, that's, you know, kind of defensible, reasonable enough, you know, without the necessary vetting and background checks and whatever else like that. You know, you're not just going to take any Joe Blow off the street and, and have him become a spy for you. So that's fair enough. But as you'll discover, a bit of an error for the British because this bloke, I tell you what, he knew what he was doing. Because after his, after he was knocked back, he goes, no worries. I'm just going to get to work on my own. No dramas. I'm going to set myself up with the Nazis as a spy. And then I'll come back to the British later once I've got the Nazis fooled. And quite incredibly, this is exactly what he does. Pujol, he pulls together this fake identity, right, that he used to trick the Nazis. He portrayed himself as a government worker who was, uh, you know, very sympathetic, just bloody loved the Nazis, um, and, uh, you know, someone who was able to make business trips to Britain as part of his job. So obviously someone who would have been, if this were true, would have been pretty valuable for the Nazis, obviously someone who could access uh, London and, and the rest of the United Kingdom, whatever else, without raising suspicion. He also tricked a printer somehow, no idea how he did this, but he tricked a printer into making him a diplomatic passport um, and with this and his cover story, he then approached a, uh, a Nazi spymaster who was based in Madrid and offered to work for him. Now, this absolute turkey, he fell for Pujol's story, hook, line and sinker, and gave him his orders. He thinks this is brilliant. Got this Spanish bloke here who's absolutely, he's, he's, you know, he's all about what we're doing back at home. And, and, and we're going to send him into, we're going to send him into Britain as a spy. We'll get him to, uh, get him to pull together a, uh, a spy ring and, uh, and feed information back to the Nazis back home. They're like that. So this spy master, he trains Pujol in basic spycraft, gives him uh, 600 pounds and a slap on the ass, and off Pujol goes to 
Lisbon, not London. So despite having been ordered to go to London to to set up aspiring there to find contacts and 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 you know see if there's any information that he can send back to his uh, his Nazi contacts there like that, he doesn't go to London. He goes to Lisbon. And here comes one of the most amazing parts of Pujol's story. Strap yourselves in for this one because I'll tell you what he did once he was in Lisbon. He had to make his Nazi handlers believe that he was in London, right? Going about recruiting all these British spies. Do you know how he did this? This is how he convinced his Nazi contacts that he was in London and not in Lisbon. He went down to the local library and picked up all of the British travel guides, books and magazines, as well as anything else that he could find that gave him information about the UK. He watched newsreels. He researched British current affairs. He read through train timetables, anything that could help him pretend to be in Britain for his reports. And once he'd done his research, he started sending false reports to the Nazis using all the little details that he'd picked up in travel brochures in order to trick them into thinking that he was in Britain. How incredible is that? You know, he, he's sending them a report saying, oh, you know, I've been here, it costs this much to get the train, I've recruited this bloke, or been there, uncovered this bit of information, whatever else like that. He, he wove such a complicated and intricate web of lies. And the Nazis, they, they loved it. They were completely taken in by it. They, so much so that they chucked more and more cash at him to support the, to, to support this supposed spiring that he was in the process of setting up. These, these reports, as I say, they were written to make it seem like he was in the UK sending out information or whatever from London. But everything was just all, he just pulled it straight out of his ass. He's just making it all up on the go. The whole time, he's cutting about in Lisbon, having a lend of the Nazis, and they are falling for it. They're falling over themselves to, to you know, take on the, all this information that he's given it, it's unbelievable. It, it 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 just worked. It was incredible. And the best part, the best part about all the information that he was sending. And look, this isn't a knock on old Pujol, who is doing an incredible job, doing terrific work here, right? It's not a knock on him. But his reports were full of mistakes, full of stuff, full of all these little things that just a cursory bit of research would have would have proven that he couldn't have been in Britain. For, so I'll give you I'll give you a couple of examples here. He didn't understand British currency. The British system of currency back then, um, uh, it was 12 pence to a shilling and 20 shillings in a pound. And so he stuffed up a bunch of uh, expense reports that he'd, he'd, that he'd sent back to them because he didn't know how to add them up properly. He didn't know what all the numbers and that, that sort of stuff, you know, he wasn't familiar with it. But the, the Nazis didn't notice. And they, they paid him all the money that he asked for, you know, after having sent these expense reports. Unbelievable. Can you believe this, right? Full credit to him. I'm, he's sending in intelligence reports seemingly from London without even being in the UK. But as I say, absolute howlers in what he was writing. For example, here's one that I find. You know, I live in Glasgow, so I can speak a little bit, little bit of personal experience on my part with uh, with this next claim. He said, he said, <clears throat> he claimed that he had a spy in Glasgow who would do anything for a liter of wine. Now. Never mind that Glaswegians would never, ever, ever drink wine that isn't, you know, a bottle of Buckfast, a, a wee bottle of uh, Wreck the Hoose Juice, as I understand it's called, a little splash of the, the commotion lotion. Um, on top of that, right, the UK didn't even use the metric system back then. So they wouldn't have known a litre from a, a decagram at, at this stage in their history. So he, he's, you know, not necessarily huge plot holes in everything that he's sending back, but definitely enough that anyone who, you know, was even a little bit familiar with how things should have looked in these reports. It should have been raising some red flags, but it didn't. You know, despite the fact that just a little bit of research would have discredited everything that Pulhol was uh, was reporting to them, the Nazis they gobbled it up. They gobbled these uh, these reports up like absolute turkeys. They couldn't get enough of him. In fact, the Nazis took his report so seriously 
that British MI5 counterintelligent efforts actually discovered some of Pujol's reports being circulated at a high level, right? And they couldn't figure out what was going on. They're going, who who is sending? You know, we've got a we got these are these are long comprehensive reports that have been written out that make no sense. But we've obviously got we got some you know they seem real enough. We're gonna have to worry about this here. They kicked off a great big spy hunt to try to find who was sending off these reports that seemed to be coming from within the UK. That I mean, you know, forget even having the Nazis fooled. He also, to a point, had the British fooled because they're worried about having a, you know, having a a, a leak, having a having a spy somewhere sending off all these reports, despite the fact they don't seem to really make any sense to them. Anyway, this continued. Until 1942, if you'll believe it, he's he's at this. He's doing this for years and years and years. By which time, Pujol, he has wasted so much Nazi time and money with his rubbish that the British they couldn't ignore him anymore. Obviously, they couldn't find this spy. There was no spy for them to find. But their research had shown that someone was unloading these absolute whoppers onto the Nazis who seemed to be falling for it. And and so they at the end of the day, they go, look, we just want this bloke on our side. We just want him. We just want to get in on the action here because this bloke's an absolute pro. We know what we know what's going on here. The final thing came when uh, when Pujol, he tricked the Nazis into sending a detachment of their navy to hunt down a completely fictional British convoy. They're sailing about trying to find this convoy that he's just completely made up. And after this, you know, after the the British realise how effective this bloke is, they go, right, we've got to bring him in. We've got, you know, we've got we've got to learn from this master here. And so he's finally recruited by MI5. He makes contact with him through some uh, some Americans that he knew, and he manages to actually finally get recruited by MI5. He was moved to London after years of pretending to live there. He actually finally moved, and now actually does. He, he, he moved there in 1942, and he was paired with an MI5 handler, a bloke named Thomas Harris. Now, this bloke also spoke Spanish, and these two worked very, very closely together over the coming years, and they they did some of the most incredible things you're ever going to hear. So so he was given the code name Garbo. This was his spy code name. Um, and this was because, I quite like this, he, this was because according to MI5, he was the best actor in the world. And so he was named after Greta Garbo. This was after they had discovered this massive fake spiring. His spiring had up to 27 different identities, all of them fake, all of them with thorough backstories, different motivations, all this. He's basically running a 27-person D&D campaign to try to trick the Nazis, and they've absolutely fallen for it, as I say, and so the British are more than happy to bring him on board, and they give him this uh, this nickname Garbo because of how good of an actor he is. So, Pujol brings Harris in on this entirely made-up network of spies, and now the two of them, they go to town on the Nazis. They continue to send in more and more false reports. But the thing is, now he's on side with the British. They can they can actually start to uh, sort of pepper it with enough truths and enough sort of uh, irrelevant details that uh, that are actually, you know, dem- demonstrably, demonstrably accurate that the Nazis are starting to get even more impressed by the quality of information that they're receiving. So this is a very, very good thing here for, uh, for Pujol's career as a spy. And he and Harris, they absolutely overload the Nazis with reports full of uh, misleading or, you know, just untrue information. Again, peppered in with enough believability, enough stuff that's going to protect his uh, his credibility there like this. And again, the Nazis never suspected a thing. In fact, Pujol and Harris, they sent through so much information, such an enormous volume of information that seemed to be, you know, so exhaustive and comprehensive to the Nazis, that the Nazis never made any further attempts 
to infiltrate Britain with spies. They thought they have they had it covered with their bloke Puhol there, so they they didn't even bother sending in any more. We, we've got everything. We've got all the angles covered. There's 27 spies hanging out in uh, in the UK, all headed up by this bloke. We don't need any more. Imagine this. This bloke's nonsense was so convincing. It was so effective that the Nazis believed that they didn't need to bother to make more of an effort to spy from within the United Kingdom. Incredible. Anyway. Paul and Harris, they are sending the Nazis all sorts of stuff. As I say, a lot of it was total rubbish designed that was to waste time and resources. But it, again, it was paired with other stuff to make sure uh, Pujol's worth as a, as a supposed spy remained intact. They would send through real actual uh, military information that was of, of very little real worth, right? So stuff that was either irrelevant or, you know, sort of didn't, didn't matter too much. Or, which is very, this is the other thing they did, which is very, very clever. They would send through very important, highly important, highly sensitive information, just a little too late for it to be of any use. I'll give you an example of, uh, of what they did. One time, just after the Allies landed in North Africa as part of Operation Torch, this was in late 1942 here, Pujols made up wine-drinking Glaswegian sent in a report that a stack of ships that were all in Mediterranean camouflage had just left the River Clyde. Now, obviously, this would have been very important. It would have allowed the Nazis to figure out what was going on, where these ships were going, what maybe their uh, their next move was going to be. And this is why. This was the genius move here, right? Pujol sent in that information, this critical military information, but he sent it in after the invasion took place, but postmarked it before it took place. So it just seemed like the letter had been delayed in the post. They get it, the Nazis get it, they go, oh, gee, just too late. Oh, mate, if, if, if we just received this a day or two earlier, you can see he sent it on time. Oh, unbelievable. How's this for bad luck? Even though this information was completely useless for the Nazis, as obviously it was received too late and the invasion already happened, they were thrilled that he had managed to gain such sensitive information and they thanked him for his magnificent work. So he's, he's, he's kicking goals with both feet as our mate Pujol here. He's doing a great job. But he did have to cover his ass, however, because there were some, uh, you know, sensitive and, and important bits of information that he couldn't send through uh, that, that would have actually, you know, been of a, a, a great detriment to the, to the British there. Um, but it was information that his spies definitely should have known. So he had to come, he and Harris had to come up with cover stories as to why he hadn't sent through stuff that, you know, if he were a real Nazi spy, he would have. So, for example, I'll give you an example here. When a naval convoy left Liverpool one time, the British didn't want the Nazis knowing about it, but for him not to report it obviously would have raised suspicion when they eventually found out that, that it had that this naval convoy was on the move. So Pujol, he covered by saying that his spy in Liverpool had fallen ill and wasn't able to report the convoy. He'd missed it. But this is, I mean, that, sure, you know, this is the this is the equivalent of turning up to school and being like, oh, no, I was I was sick. Well, did you bring a note from your mum? Nah, nah, I was just, I was just sick. He found the note from his mum. Do you know what he did? A couple of weeks later, a Liverpool newspaper published an obituary for this totally made-up spy. This bloke who didn't exist, a Liverpool newspaper published an obituary for him, so the Nazis would then see that and be like, oh, that makes sense. He was sick. He missed that, uh, you know, the, the boat's leaving there like that, the ship's leaving, and then he died a couple of weeks later. He was obviously very unwell. How smart is that? Incredible. So... This is the sort of stuff that these two are doing, Pujol and Harris working together and, and pulling the wall over the Nazis' eyes. In 1943, however, things change a little bit. 
Because Puhol and Harris, they start sending in their reports to the Nazis via radio. They invent a new spy who conveniently just happened to be a radio operator. How very lucky indeed. And the reason they did this, or one of the one of the happy consequences of this at least, was that now because they're communicating via radio, Puhol needs all of the Nazi encryption codes and whatever else the, that they use to uh, uh, you know send radio transmissions. And the Nazis give it to him. They furnish him with all the radio codes, which he, of course, then passes on to the British, including the famous code breakers at Bletchley Park. You may have heard of them. And even better than that, right, because Pujol's messages, uh, so he, he would encrypt them, send them to Madrid. And in Madrid, the Nazis would then encrypt them using the Enigma machine, another thing you've probably heard of there, uh, uh, this, this, this code machine that, that the, the British were working so hard to try to crack. Um, and the Enigma-encoded Enigma messages would then be sent to Berlin. Now, importantly, this meant that the people in Bletchley Park who were trying to crack this Enigma code, they now had the plain text versions of the messages that they were intercepting in Enigma code and trying to crack. So it, 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 I don't know if this is a little difficult to follow, but what would happen basically is Pujol would give Bletchley Park the, the plain text message that he was that he would then send to Madrid. Madrid would then encode it and send it to Berlin Bletchley Park would intercept it, and then they would have next to them the plain text and the encoded messages next to each other. So, you know, this is kind of like a, you know, answers in the back of the maths book situation here where they didn't have to work from scratch. They had both the plain text and the encoded version together to work through. So obviously a massive help in trying to uh, to decode, uh, you know, the Enigma machine. And and, and part of the reason that uh, British code-breaking British intelligence was was so successful during the Second World War. And, and again, thanks to this bloke Pujol here. So safe to say that Pujol was very meaningfully influencing the shape of the war. But this was just the start of it. You've, you, I mean, you may have heard of the Enigma machine. You may have heard of Bletchley Park and the code breakers there. But you have definitely heard of the famous D-Day invasion, codenamed Operation Overlord, when uh, Allied forces landed on the beaches of Normandy in northern France on the 6th of June, 1944. It was one of the most decisive events of the Second World War. And as you can imagine, it was very carefully planned down to the nth degree. Now, part of that planning and part of the reason that D-Day was so successful for the Allies was all of the secrecy and the bluffs and the double bluffs and the smoke screens and everything else that hid the real plan from the Nazis. All of this deception that was uh, used to, you know, cover exactly what was going on with Operation Overlord, that was codenamed Operation Bodyguard, and it itself uh, consisted of several other operations that were all aimed to confuse the Nazis in different ways as to what was really going on. Now, obviously, the Nazis had caught wind of Allied invasion plans. You can't keep a plan that big that, uh, you know, you can't hope to keep it secret. So this meant that it was critical that the Allies kept the Nazis guessing as to what was actually going to take place. They didn't want them making proper real preparations in, in you know, that, that were going to be able to counter the plans that the Allies were putting out. Now, you may have heard of the lengths that the, that the Allies went to. They made, you know, dummy ships and planes, and they rolled out inflatable tanks. They drew up fake battle plans that involved different uh, invasion locations. They deliberately leaked information here and withheld information there. The whole thing was just, you know, a, a big smokescreen to try to, uh, you know, bamboozle and trick the Nazis into, into basically, you know, confusing them into not knowing what was going on there. But one thing that definitely helped the British in doing this was having a highly trusted and highly valued double agent on their side. It meant that the British were able to feed just the right amount of misinformation over the, to the Nazis in the lead up to D-Day. As I say, 
the Nazis knew that the Allies were cooking something up. And so they got in touch with Pujol in January 1944 and they asked him to find out exactly what was going on. They wanted to know what these invasion plans were and they tasked Pujol with getting as much information as they could and sending through as many reports as he could about the uh, the Allied plans here. And so as a result of this, Pujol was a critical component of Operation Fortitude, one of the sub-operations of Operation Bodyguard, which was designed to convince the Nazis that the actual landing site for the invasion would be Calais. Now, obviously, we know it wasn't Calais, it was in Normandy, but everything that Pujol did, all these little snippets of information, everything that he did was designed to slowly and but surely manipulate and trick the Nazis into thinking that the invasion was going to be in Calais. Between January and the actual invasion, which obviously took place in June, for six months, Pujol and Harris ascending report after report after report, all aimed slowly driving them towards this conclusion here. They sent over 500 reports to the Nazis via radio. That's that's about an average of four a day, all with these little tiny bits of information, little crumbs of information that were designed to trick the Nazis into thinking the landing would be in Calais and not in Normandy. And this was critical. The reason for this the Nazi defences along the French coast were spread very thin indeed. And so if they ended up concentrating their defences in one area, obviously that would then leave the other areas much more vulnerable. Now, on top of this, on top of trying to trick the Nazis that they into thinking the, the Allies were going to land in Calais, there was another element to what Pujol and Harris were trying to achieve with Operation Fortitude, one that was much, much more ambitious than that, right? Not only were they instructed to trick the Nazis into thinking the invasion would be in Calais, right? They were also instructed to keep the Nazis believing that the invasion was still coming in Calais even after the Normandy invasion had taken place. I mean, that sounds ludicrous. It sounds impossible. How could you convince the Nazis that they weren't being invaded in Normandy while they were being invaded in Normandy? Pujol and Harris were tasked to execute an absolutely masterful plan. What they were going to do, right, what they, were, they were going to tell the Nazis that the invasion in Normandy was just a diversion. It was a, it was a, it was a ruse that was designed to, uh, to, to draw the Nazi troops away from Calais before the real invasion uh, took place there. This was the strategy that was designed to keep the Nazis tied up at Calais, expecting an attack there for as long as possible. Now, this, this plan that Pujol and Harris had never panned out. They actually never managed to uh, to give this information in the way that they planned to. This is check out what happened, right? Pujol had arranged for his Nazi contact to be ready at three o'clock in the morning on the sixth of June, the day of the landing, and he was uh, he told them that uh, he had a, 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 one of his informants, one of his agents, was was arriving with critical information overnight, and they needed to be there ready at three o'clock to receive this critical information that was going to uh, you know obviously be of utmost importance here. Now, this critical information was about the Normandy landings, and it was going to be delivered too late for the Nazis to actually do anything about it. But of course, it was going to bolster his credibility as a spy because it was still coming in in advance it was still something that you know he he couldn't know unless he was a spy or as it happened a double agent and to capitalize on the cred- on the credibility that he would earn from you know giving them this information or even though it's too late right he would then go on to tell them that normandy was just a ruse it was just diverting their attention away from calais and that the real attack was coming to calais shortly so that's where they needed to focus their attention but get this Despite this critically important appointment that Pujol had made at three o'clock in the morning, 
the Nazi contact never showed up, never showed up to receive the, the, the transmission. And Pujol wasn't able to execute this plan as it had been, uh, you know, as it had been set out here. So initially, this seems like terrible news for Pujol. Who, you know, the whole idea was that he needed to convince the Nazis to bolster Calais and stay away from Normandy. But now he can't do it. He can't do it because this bloke hasn't showed up for the meeting. And all of a sudden, this whole plan in order to, you know, try to convince the Nazis that this, this, I mean, the Normandy attack's happening no matter what. And he needs to feed this information through to make sure they only think it's a diversion. Otherwise, they're going to run guns blazing from Calais down to Normandy to try to defend their turf over there. So... He's in a bit of a trouble here, is Pujol, because this whole plan is not quite hinging on what he has to say, but it's very important that he keeps the Nazis tied up at Calais. But he doesn't give up. He realises, you know, he's in a bit of a pickle here, but he realises that he is going to be able to, to, to turn it around. And so our boy, he doubles down and he goes after them even harder. When his Nazi contact finally shows up sometime after eight o'clock in the morning, Pujol went mental at him. He tell him he was disgusted. He had this critical information, he had this critical message to send through and it had been missed. And then, right, with the with the authority of the British government, he gave them all this other technical information about about Normandy to add to the information that he was supposed to deliver to make it even more convincing, even look even more like even more of a coup, even more of this amazing scoop, this information that he'd found there, made it seem even more valuable. And this again, shored up his credibility as, as a reliable and valued source with the Nazis. And it was important in the lead up to what was probably the most important report that Pujol ever sent. After this whole thing, after this missed call, it actually set the stage for a, a, a transmission that Pujol made that in a very real sense had a, a, huge, a supremely strong influence on the outcome of the Second World War. And I'll tell you what happened here, because on the 9th of June, Three days after the Normandy landings had uh, had begun here, Pujol sent through an extremely long and exhaustive report about this supposed invasion of Calais. They, 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 you know, he, he and his, his other colleagues there, they'd taken the time to write up this massive fictional report about how how this whole invasion of Calais was going was gonna to take place. He talked about the hundreds of thousands of troops in southeast England. He talked, you know, about how they were ready to be deployed to France. He talked about the, the vehicles and the hardware that was all ready to go. And he reinforced the idea that Normandy had just been a diversion and this massive invasion force was 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 getting ready in the southeast of England, ready to uh, jump over the uh, the channel there and into in towards Calais. Now Pujol's reports were also supported by other Nazi recon reports. Had been you know, scouts had been scooting about in the air and having a look from uh, from a long way away as to what was going on down there in southeast England. And sure enough, they were seeing. All of these ships, all of these planes, all of these tanks, all of this, all this stuff that seemed to be ready to go there like that. Of course, all of which was completely fake. These tanks and planes and ships were made out of balsa wood and or just completely inflatable, right? They were just they were just a complete fabrication there. And the consequence of this is that the Nazis are completely taken in. On the one hand, they've got all of this, you know, recon information about the the huge amounts of troops and hardware and whatever else that's uh, that's mustering in the southeast of England. And on the other hand, they've got this highly reliable, highly valued source coming from you know the 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 beating heart of, of, of their espionage efforts in uh, in the United Kingdom that all points towards Calais being where the the Allies are going to land. This information went up all the way, all the way up the Nazi chain of command until it was in the hands of Hitler himself. And I am pleased to say that even he 
was absolutely and totally bamboozled by our good mate Pujol. And as a result, he ordered the full reinforcement of Calais. And this marked the complete and total success of Operation Fortitude and was one of the key reasons that the D-Day landings were so successful. The Nazis kept the bulk of their defensive forces in Calais rather than move them to Normandy to reinforce their troops there. This meant that the Allies were able to establish and entrench themselves in Normandy successfully due to the lack of reinforcements and the extra time that had been bought by Operation Fortitude. The troops that landed there on the beaches in the north of France were able to stay there, dig in and fight a fight against the Nazis and, and as we all know, as history tells us, slowly but surely beat them back towards the east. The Nazi troops didn't move from Calais for months. They were still there in August, still anticipating this huge attack that they'd, you know, they'd been falsely put onto by Pujol and the rest of them there like that. In fact, the Nazis were so convinced that an attack was coming for Calais that even in August, there were still more troops in Calais than there had ever been in Normandy, even during the D-Day attack itself. So obviously, look, there was so much that had to go right for the D-Day landings to be the success that they were, but Pujol's work as part of Operation Fortitude meant that the Allied push into occupied Europe started about as well as it possibly could have. The Nazis wasted their time and their resources defending the beaches in Calais from, let's not forget what they were defending them from, inflatable tanks, mate. Inflatable tanks kept the Nazis at bay, all because Pujol had put the spook into them, put the scare into them, and they were fearing this attack coming towards Calais. On top of this, what makes this mm, mm, even sweeter here? The Nazis never realised they'd been tricked. They never realised that Pujol had, had pulled a fast one on them. From go to woe, they believed that he was the real McCoy. And as a result, and this really is absolutely brilliant, Pujol's contribution to the Nazi war effort was deemed so important by the Nazi high command that he was awarded with the Iron Cross second class. And, you know, you might stop and think, whoa, whoa, why is that brilliant? It is brilliant because he was also awarded an MBE from King George VI of Britain, meaning that he is one of the only, if not the only person, to receive a medal from both belligerent parties during the Second World War. Pujol knew, however, that his good luck wasn't going to last forever, and uh, MI5 agreed with uh, his assessment that he might be in a little bit of danger as the war wound down. There are a couple of scares about him being revealed as a double agent. None of them actually ever, you know, came to any fruition, but uh, he was, you know, there was a lot of risk associated with the work that he did, obviously, and uh, and even after the war ended, there was, you know, if he was discovered as, to have been a double agent, there might have been repercussions from Nazi sympathisers who had, you know, survived or had, uh, you know, escaped retribution or whatever else like that once the war had finished. So as a result, when the war was well and truly over, MI5 actually helped Pujol disappear so as to avoid, avoid any reprisals from uh, from Nazis or Nazi sympathizers, so, you know, who, who, who found out who he was and, and what he'd done. So... In 1949, with the assistance of MI5, Pujol moved to Angola and died of malaria. No, no, of course that's not what happened. Well, that's what's happened. That's what happened officially, at least. That's what, uh, you know, obviously, you know, no repercussions if you're dead, right? So MI5 helped to fake his death there in, uh, in Angola. And, uh, you know, this story that they'd cooked up was designed to prevent any further interest in Pujol. But in truth, Pujol moved 
to Venezuela, where he lived out much of the rest of his life as just a regular bloke. He managed a uh, book and uh, a gift shop in Lagunillas until the until the 80s, actually, when he moved to uh, Caracas instead there. So at this point in, at his life, in his life, he's more or less still completely unknown to history. Uh, and this this was the case until the mid-80s, until, until 1984. And in 1984, so between, imagine this, between the end of the Second World War, when he'd been doing all this incredibly important work that had changed the course of world history, all the way through to 1984, he lived in just relative obscurity. I mean, you know, almost almost total anonymity, basically, on the other side of the world there, like that, the other side of the Atlantic. Until 1984, as I say, when a bloke uh, whose name was Rupert Allison, he became very interested in the uh, in the story of this double agent, uh, who who was known, you know, again in, in in MI5 circles as Garbo. He became very interested in what this bloke had done and who he was and all that sort of stuff, and did a bit of investigation, a bit of digging to find out what this bloke's story was. He did everything that he could to hunt him down, to find out his story, and uh, and, and you know have a chat with the bloke. And it took him. Over a decade. He started looking for him in 1971, but it was finally in 1984, after having discovered Pujol's name and after after having, I mean, you got to love the detective work, detective work, he called every single person who shared Pujol's name in the Barcelona phone book. Um, Alison finally got in touch with a nephew of Pujol who uh, gave him information as to where to find him, all that sort of stuff. And that led Alison to to meet Pujol in New Orleans in May 1984. Now, Alison persuaded Pujol to visit the United Kingdom, and he did so that same year and met Prince Philip as well as a bunch of his old colleagues from MI5. And it was at this point that his his story became much more broadly known as he shared it with the rest of the world and a lot of you know the, the previously sensitive details and information about his uh, his former life as a spy now emerged for us all to uh, you know to enjoy as we're doing exactly now. Um, as part of this visit in Europe, he also uh, he also went to Normandy on the on the fortieth anniversary of the landings there. He was there on the sixth of June in nineteen eighty four. Um, and again, let's not forget these landings. You know, the anniversary of the landings that was the, that were being celebrated there. These landings owed much of their success to him. Their long-term success was guaranteed by Operation Fortitude in no small part thanks to the work that Pujol did. And, you know, his story emerging and, and becoming known to history in this way after he, he, he you know, <laughs> sort of came out, not from hiding, but came out from his, uh, his seclusion on the other side of the Atlantic, it... it I'm just so glad it did. I'm so glad that we all got to uh, to share and, and, and celebrate and enjoy this story because I tell you what, it's an absolute belter. I'm sure you'll agree. I mean, what a story. What a life this bloke had. But of course, like like every other story, it does have to have an end. And Juan Pujol Garcia, his story ends on the 10th of October in 1988 in Caracas when he died at the age of 76. And I tell you what, what an incredible story he had. What an amazing life he led. From a humble chicken farmer to a disillusioned soldier to a self-made spy all the way up to influencing the course of world history. And all, once again, in his words, all for the good of humanity. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of Juan Pujol Garcia. And I tell you what, I'm so glad to have been able to share that. I'm so glad to discover it myself. What a story it is and what a, blo- what a, what a bloke this fellow was. I mean, quite, quite an astonishing tale. So I do hope you've enjoyed it just as much as I did telling it to you. Anyway. That's that for another week. Usual boring housekeeping stuff here. Halfasshistory.net is uh, is your 
place for all things to do with the podcast. You can find old episodes there, links to uh, not only ways to subscribe to the show on iTunes and Android and uh, and Spotify there, but also, of course, to the Patreon. And I'm very pleased to, uh, again, remind you that merch is on the way. At the moment, I've got T-shirts planned, tote bags, if that's something that uh, I've had a couple of people inter- uh, indicate interest in that. So if, if you're interested in them, I might make them. If you've got any other suggestions, I'm, I'm kind of moving away from stuff like mugs and things like that because they're a bit heavier and I don't want to have to um, sort of blast people for shipping uh, across the world for them like that. So anything that might be light, portable, easy to any easy to send around, maybe bookmarks or something nerdy like that. I don't know. If you've got ideas, please let me know. The best way to do that, of course, is at halfhousehistory.net. There's a contact form there. And um, I do have people sending in topics every single week. I've got a list as long as my arm. I, I do get through them all. I've, I've, I've At the moment, I've responded to nearly every single email that people have sent in. If I haven't responded to you, just email me again and I'll, I'll, I'll try to get back to you. But thanks so much. Thanks so much for being part of the Half House History family and listening every week. Or if you're new to the show, welcome. Welcome, by all means, welcome. Hope you'll stick around for a couple more episodes. Uh, but it's always great to hear from people, so please do get in touch if you've got uh, thoughts to share. Anyway, that's enough of that nonsense for this week. We are going to close out the show as usual with a question posed on Reddit here. Reddit historian Doug. That's a prime piece of Reddit real estate there. Doug wants to know, obviously been talking about the invasion of Normandy a little bit, so Doug's got a question to do with that. <clears throat> If the invasion of Normandy was so successful, why did it only get a D minus? <laughs> <laughs>